Welcome to Thinking Edge with Ed Boudreau. So we couldn't be more grateful to have Liz Chen here today with us on Thinking Edge podcast. She is an assistant professor at UNC Gilling School of Global Public Health. Liz, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And I'd love to jump right in. Liz, you consider yourself a, a methodologist. What, is, what does that mean? What does that encompass? I really love that. Yeah, I've been really thinking about my career trajectory and my research and teaching portfolio and of late have realized that I want to spend more time digging into methods and training others in particular methods rather than tying myself to a particular health topic or behavior. And so my previous research has been focused in adolescent health, specifically adolescent sexual health. And I really love the work that I've done there and hope to continue doing some at the same time would really like to spend more time in other public health subfields and then also in fields not related to public health even. Right. That's incredible. I'm reading a great book called Cracking Complexity. And when I think about almost a methodologist, it's independent of what methods that you, you choose to go in with, but really truly understanding the problem you're solving for, and then almost adapting you know, methodologies around perhaps cracking that complexity or kind of thinking about complexity and then simplifying ways to actually approach it. Does, does that resonate with you around kind of a methodologist or methodologies? Yeah, it does. And I also think that my formal training is in public health. And so I have a certain set of rigorous qualitative and quantitative methods that I've been trained in and use quite often. And as a design thinking methodologist, I also want to be able to integrate methods outside of public health, like design thinking into my work and encourage others to do so as well. I'd love love an example you know, of that, because I think people have particular disciplines, perhaps, whether it be, you know, design thinking or within public health, that almost scientific approach. How do you think about the integration, the merger of the two and, and what outcomes are possible if, if you choose the right methodologies at the right time? Yeah. And methods are really tied with also mindsets. And so in public health in particular, with the way that funders structure grants and proposals that you apply for, oftentimes the solutions are pre-specified. Mm. And so target audiences are already identified and best practices generally lead to a delivery method, for instance, for an intervention. And the funders are specifically looking for people to just execute a lot of the time. Right. Versus, I think in design thinking, we start the process, we might have an idea in mind for a solution, but the mindset is that you are willing to change what your preconceived notion of what the end product will look like. And so we'll go on a journey alongside real people to really get to something that is not only likable and desirable, but also feasible and viable. Right. What are the, because I, I mean, I love the process in a way. And have you been through kind of like, hey, we have a proposal, we have a grant and it's, it's pre-specified. And then the discovery process actually has, you know, took place and it, it changed the hypothesis in a way. How do you work with the stakeholders around that change and that adaptation, I guess you could call it? Yeah. One of the earliest projects I worked on myself with 
design thinking was on a teen pregnancy prevention project. And the grantors specified that they wanted to use technology in some way to improve teen pregnancy outcomes. So decreasing the rates of teen pregnancy among adolescents across the United States. And I'm a former high school teacher and sexual health educator. So immediately gravitated towards an in-classroom solution that would have interactive quizzes and Q&A that would be integrated into typical health education classes in a high school setting. And through our initial design research, especially in the inspiration phase of the process, we learned many lessons. First of which was that young people start to care and look up information about sex and relationships earlier than high school, which led us to focus on middle school students. Second, there wasn't an interest in learning about sex and education in schools. It wasn't deemed as a particularly safe and comfortable space. And so teens asked us for a more private and confidential avenue for doing that. And then third, we learned that teens were already using their phones to look up information about sex and relationships, especially through Google and even using porn sites on their phone. And so we knew that in order to be competitive, we would want to meet teens where they were already at, which was on their smartphones. Wow, that's incredible. I like the arc of that in terms of initial hypothesis, looking at the hypothesis, but potential outputs in the proposal stage, but then going through that discovery and learning process, which human-centered design focuses on what's actually happening in ethnographic research or the, the market, and then adapting based on that discovery, the solution, which actually kind of ties back to what outcomes are we looking for? And it probably potentially has that idea around output versus outcome, right? And what are you actually looking at or looking for? Yeah, and I think that in public health, we often pre-specify outputs and outcomes. And so I think it's really important in addition to the pre-specified ones that a grantor or a system might ask of you to make sure that we are also asking our intended audience members, what they care about and what they wanna get out of it. And so circling back to the teen pregnancy prevention project, we knew that the funder really cared about decreased rates of teen pregnancy and increased sex education knowledge. But we also heard from young people that they actually really cared about feeling more connected and less alone. And so if we hadn't gone through the process of intentionally and meaningfully engaging young people early, I think we would have missed that opportunity and that outcome and solely aligned our design to the pre-specified outcomes that our funders wanted. I really, I love that because it brings in the empathy part, right? (laughs) Really caring for, in a way, whom you're serving or what you're actually looking to, to impact and the feeling of isolation, you know, not being alone, really taps that deep empathy and, and really changes the trajectory of the potential solutions. And how do you, you know, if we bring back to the, the methodologist, thinking about human-centered design, thinking about the, the scientific process, if you were to kind of deconstruct, you know, that stack or, or add other things to it, what other methodologies would you, would you kind of think about in the process or that you've actually seen? Yeah, I really think that 
human-centered design or design thinking is very similar in many ways to community-based participatory research. Hmm. And I think that some of the key differences might lie in the output or outcomes of the two different approaches. So CBPR often takes, for a variety of reasons, a very, very long time because you are building deep relationships with community members and often it's years before solutions are designed and or tried versus I think in a human-centered design approach, we are driving towards actionable solutions in a scale of weeks and months instead. And the engagement looks slightly different. And then with regards to the outputs, I really do think that human-centered design and design thinking projects lead to tangible either products or interventions and programs or policies in a shorter time period. And in addition to the generation of knowledge, which is often the one of the byproducts of CDPR type work. Can you say more about that? Did you say generation of knowledge? Yeah. And so again, each CBPR project is different, but in the fields and the literature that I've been sifting through, it does seem like the emphasis of co-design and co-generation of knowledge is really important in CBPR. Sometimes though, the end product is that generation of knowledge and lessons learned and the focus is there rather than testing and implementing a new product solution or policy. And so I, I do think that in some ways, human-centered design is more action-oriented and experimental compared to some CBPR approaches and projects. Right. I love the kind of thinking around that, but also the potential integration of those two processes or, or methodologies to you know, not only focus on the potential long run, but in the short run as well. And, and what are the experiments that could be run and the uh, understanding from those experiments change the trajectory of the, the long run, perhaps in even a greater way? Yeah, I agree. And I, I also think that human-centered design lends itself well uh, to projects involving implementation science. And so I think these methods, especially integrated with qualitative research methods, can do a beautiful job highlighting barriers and facilitators for implementation. And so whether it's better understanding journeys of patients and healthcare systems, and not only their sole instance in the clinic, but also before and after through a variety of card sorts or mapping activities. I think it's really important that for those of us who are expected to create solutions that not only work in a test formal testing phase associated with the study, but actually make it into the real world, use some of these methods in conjunction to other implementation science methods to assess fit and feasibility and viability. I'm grinning because I, I, you're using terminology that's unfamiliar to me. So implementation science, because I'm you know, used to human-centered design and the design uh, thinking process, but I, I haven't been exposed to implementation science. Can you deconstruct that, describe it? Love to hear more. Yes, it's a subfield within public health and medicine. And the notion behind it is that we know that evidence-based programs and interventions and recommendations take years, if not decades, to trickle into the field itself. And so what are the ways that we can study the actual implementation of these 
solutions so that they make their way into practice faster and then still with rigor. And so if you think about it from like a front end, back end type perspectives, the solution development is the front end work. And oftentimes a lot of the barriers we face in translating public health and medical interventions happens on the back end in the field. And so what if we use some human-centered design methods, both as we design solutions, but also as we're trying to work with different clinics or hospitals or health departments to roll out solutions to better understand the needs and wants and specific nuances of the different populations and systems. Wow. I'm actually drawing a diagram here and I have a hypothesis. Tell me if this is incorrect or correct, but also potentially ways to think about there's science and research and moving towards that implementation. I guess more of a question now, is there a significant gap between the two in terms of what do we move forward with potentially and how to actually get traction kind of in that in-between area between science and research and actual application. So is there a gap of kind of traction that exists between those two? There's definitely a gap. And so I think that there's always a learning curve between having an evidence-based solution that needs to then be implemented in a variety of different settings. So I do think that design thinking can help with that gap in making adaptations and implementation smoother. I will say though, further upstream, I really do think that more design thinking principles and methods are needed for that research and development piece up front, because that is what will really help make sure that interventions and solutions really are desirable, feasible, and viable before you get to the point where you're scaling up. And so if you haven't meaningfully engaged with stakeholders and attended audiences on the front end, it can feel like you are force fitting an intervention into a lot of different populations and settings that might've worked for one specific subset, but might not work for others or might not work at a greater scale. That's a great, great call out. What are some of the, and it could be, I think change management is too big of a word, but influence you know, might be another word to use, but the ways to influence or drive design thinking within science and, and research that is impactful and integrates with the scientific process as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I really think that scientists, especially those who are used to experimentation cycles, are familiar with putting ideas out there and then learning when ideas and solutions they put forth might not do what they intended to do. I do think it's the human element of everything that should be emphasized and incorporated. And so public health and medicine, I think many of us are taught to really look for evidence-based solutions and practices based on the peer-reviewed literature and to interpret and analyze quantitative results from data sets. And we really aren't encouraged always to spend time in the field with real people to work with them to generate ideas for solutions. And having spent more than a decade in both the fields of education and public health, 
it constantly surprises me how few resources are dedicated to actually getting to know a particular population and setting at the start of a project and meaningfully engaging with the community throughout as opposed to making all top-down decisions. And so I, I just think that with every scientific process or research process, we should reflect and figure out what opportunities exist for how we can more meaningfully engage with members of our intended audience and spend time with them in a non-tokenistic way. Yeah, it's, you just bring a unique perspective kind of in the, the strata, everything from research to the scientific process to human-centered design to actual implementation and thinking about people first, thinking about the humans first, thinking about the empathy and, and really pulling that all the way back to the research that's being done and changing that vector of success and really thinking about the people that, that you're serving. Liz, I'd love to ask you kind of a, an open question. And part of it is if you were speaking in front of a thousand folks, whether it be virtual now or, or in person, and there were, there were public health folks there, there were, there were scientists, there were the researchers, but there were also design thinkers in the audience. And you were giving a presentation on the three things that you would advise this community. What would the, the three things be if you were to put your presentation together quickly? It would be like, these three things in order to impact the success of an idea? Yeah, it's hard to distill to just three. I think through my work with lots of faculty members at UNC and different project teams, I would say that recruitment is a big topic. And for those who are interested in recruiting using a strategy that IDEO.org coins extremes and mainstreams. I think that that is one of the most transformational methods in my own public health work. And so in public health, usually when we recruit samples, it's common for us to recruit typical users or typical patients and out of convenience or out of the fact that there's just more of them. And also the thinking that if we improve health for the majority of people, that those, uh, the tail ends of a risk distribution curve would also reap the benefits. And design thinking specifically challenges that notion and asks us to think about who the extremes are within our intended audience groups. Because inherently, if we design solutions for those outliers, those in the middle would be satisfied as well. And so for us, when we think about recruitment for projects, it's not just diversity in demographics, but also diversity in lived experience, behavior, thoughts. And so for the sex ed example from earlier with the teen pregnancy project, we went out recruiting teens who self-identified as having multiple sexual partners versus those who had never had a romantic relationship teens who were identified as very religious or growing up in very religious households versus those who were not, as well as teens who use their phones constantly and were on it hours and hours a day versus those who didn't even e use smartphones. So I think that intentionally recruiting with this design thinking method or lens is really important at work. Secondly, I think that we would all benefit from reflecting on the distinction between 
divergent and convergent thinking. And so constantly in the design thinking process, you are going back and forth between divergent thinking. So creating choices and convergent thinking, which is more making choices. And even in our day-to-day, in our meetings, we are often being asked to brainstorm and make a decision within a short period of time. And so whenever possible, I would urge folks to tease out and hold space for each of those processes separately, and then also give folks time to brainstorm individually prior to coming together whole group. That has yielded a lot of great and rich discussions and new ideas. And then I think the last recommendation or piece of advice of advice I would give would be to look for opportunities to meaningfully co-create or offer co-creation sessions with members of an intended audience. It's really important to understand what solutions already exist and to understand what they perceive as a good solution because it will help you understand what the underlying motivations are and what might be barriers and facilitators to a solution. And so just dropping the assumption that you as a researcher or someone in a position of power knows better and yeah, listening to those who have the lived experience to help guide that decision-making process. Liz, this is a incredible three pieces of advice. Recruitment is incredibly important thinking about the extreme, because in serving the extreme, you will serve the mainstream in a better and different way. In in fact, being more inclusive of the solution that you're creating, you know, hold space for that divergent, convergent thinking. I love the, um, the rate and rich combination. That's an incredible way to think, what rate of speed are you going? Are we enable richness of the conversation and, and holding that space at the appropriate time and not getting to decisions fast, getting to the right decisions at the right rate, and then co-creation with whom you're serving and making sure you're bringing in that lived experience. Just an incredible set of, of recommendations. So Liz, we're really grateful to have you on Thinking Edge today and the level of thinking that you bring to, to the you know, methodology, the scientific process, you know, and just really being an incredible force in the industry. So thank you. Thank you so much.